All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And as always, we are exploring faith as we ever endeavor to pursue grace. And today, as we come to you, we're thawing out from this deep freeze that hit the Midwest and all the snow that Oklahoma got, real snow, not the slushy kind. And as a result of all this weather, I'm a little nasally and sniffly today. So all of you listening, if you hear me sniff and snort through this episode, I apologize ahead of time and I ask you to bear with me. Today, Kevin and I are going to be discussing a topic and a concept that is referred to in theology as the regulative principle. And the regulative principle is one of those ideas that we all have an awareness of, but we may not have a name for it. At least I wasn't aware of it until I read about it in a book. I think it was a a book by Christian Smith. I can't remember which book it was, but that was the first time I came across that term. And whenever I looked up that term and that definition in the footnotes, I did a little more digging into it and found, holy smokes, this idea really permeates itself throughout evangelical thought. It's one of those terms that very few people have ever really heard of outside of your you know, theology nerd that may arise from time to time like you and me, Kevin. But it's something that we do all have an awareness of. And I'd, I'm just wondering, as we kick this off, have you, had you heard that term, the regulative principle before? Well, I was definitely familiar with the concept, but I had never used that term per se. In the Churches of Christ growing up, it was always about authority, command, example, necessary, inference, those types of things, which fall under the umbrella of the relative, under the uh, rel- uh, re- regulative principle, not the relative principle, the regulative <laughs> principle. And so it's that same concept that the Bible, the purpose of the Bible is to make sure everything is regulated the way it should be, that we have to go to the Bible, we have to have a book, chapter, and verse, or multiple book, chapter, and verses, and that everything needs to, we need to take a a straightforward, face value, literal approach to, which is ironic because no one actually does that. <laughs> Even those who claim that they do, they they really don't. I was doing a little study on my book and still in the middle of writing it, and it's interesting because I was studying the practice of foot washing, and while I would say the majority of Christians today, that may be an overstatement, but at least the majority of Christians that I know today would go to that passage where in John chapter 13, where Jesus said, just as I have washed feet, so you do too. You you need to do these things just like I've done them. You need to wash feet just as I've washed feet. That's very clear. The Bible says it. But there, everyone would understand, well, Jesus wasn't actually regulating that practice. He wasn't telling us that's what we need to do. He was just simply saying that we need to serve others. And that was the way that they served people during their day and time. But now we live in a different culture. And so we're to serve in different ways. Yeah, Boy, that, that, that's, that, you know, could be called progressive and liberal and all sorts of stuff because what's ironic is the most conservative people that I know interpret that passage to mean just how I explained it. They, they literally don't believe that today we're to wash feet, even though when Jesus washed feet and told his disciples to wash feet, that's exactly what it meant at that point in time. So we understand that that's not what it means anymore for us because times have changed. So when you start to, to probe that a little bit, you see that, wait a minute, this whole idea of the regulative principle, this command example, necessary inference, and we'll get into a little bit later, that's just doesn't have the type of strength behind it that I once thought that it did. Well, and I think that it's because 
we tend to inherit the lenses that we use to go through life, that we use to look at scripture. We inherit our values from our culture. And by culture, I don't mean our overarching culture in general. We inherit our values from our parents, from our grandparents, from our friends and our family, from our aunts and our uncles, from our church families. We inherit our values and we inherit our lenses from them. Like my kids tend to be pretty good kids. They get along fairly well with one another. I mean, they're kids. They go to war with each other too. They get mad at each other. They hit and fight and kick, but they get along more than they conflict with one another. And they know that whenever there's conflict and that conflict escalates to a point in which, you know, fisticuffs are had or voices are raised, they know that if mama's home or daddy's home, or if, you know, both of us are home and we are aware of what's going on, we're going to get onto them for it. They tend to apologize. They tend to get along well with others and, and we move on and everything's cool. But then you have other kids that are raised in a different familial culture who are raised in a much more strict manner. They wouldn't even dare speak to an adult. They're incredibly shy because they have had it beaten into them, sometimes literally, that you don't say a word to anyone unless you're spoken to or you don't speak up or you don't do this or you don't do that. So they're terrified of speaking out. And then you have others in a completely different subculture where you have these kids that are just little monsters that run around and terrorize everybody. They break things. They have no regard for personal property or personal space or anything else. All of those are the values of the parents. A lot of times there are exceptions to that, especially in behavior disorders and things like that. But the majority of the time, those are representative of the values that those kids are being taught. That's, that's what we see there. So if we take that and we spread it out, whenever we come into a faith group, we come into a church, we come into a faith community, a denomination, whatever term you want to use, we tend to inherit the lenses of that group. And we tend to look at the scripture through the lenses of that group. And Whenever we do that, we see all of the strength that that offers, but it's rare that we really examine the weaknesses of it. And whenever you say that it really isn't as compelling as it used to be for you, that's why we're doing this podcast is because it's not as compelling to me either. You know, the idea of command, example, and necessary inference, which is a hallmark of the regulated principle that we'll get into later, it's it seems to be an airtight way to approach scripture. It seems to be the most logical way to approach scripture when you don't know of any other way to approach scripture. So whenever you begin to see that there are other ways that you can look at things and whenever you begin to see that there's inconsistency with that application with foot washing being a great example of that, the weaknesses of that begin to come through and then you begin to look for a better way to move forward in your, in your journey of faith. Yeah, I remember when I was talking to a friend of mine when I first started changing and we were talking about which examples are binding and which examples in the New Testament are not binding. And it just was so convoluted and complicated. And I went to John 13, 14, and I asked my friend, I said, well, do you follow what Jesus said in John 13, 14, where Jesus said, just as I've washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And he said, well, no, because we have to look at the culture and we have to look at the day and time and the context. I said, well, do you think that's what Jesus meant in John 13, 14? He said, well, yeah, that's what he meant at that point in time. But that's not how we apply that verse to us today. 
And I said, well, do you not understand that that's exactly what so many other Christians are saying about other verses? They're, they're, they're using the same logic. They're saying that it, when it was written for that specific situation, for that specific person or group of people in that specific culture, it did mean what it says, but it doesn't mean that for us. That's not the way we apply the Bible today. And uh, I remember that caused him a lot of pause, too, because as we're going through the New Testament, trying to almost seemingly arbitrarily picking and choosing what examples we're going to take and what examples we're not going to take, you run up, you start to see that we're kind of creating these these patterns, these presuppositional patterns that we're, we already know what we believe. And so we're going to go to the New Testament to figure out how we can string along what we call a pattern. And we just talked about this off air. It's so easy to find patterns because even if they're not there, our minds like patterns. And so when you have information and you see something that you think may correlate with your presuppositional beliefs, then it's easy for you to go ahead and go forward with that. And by the way, if you do not take John 13, 14 today as teaching that you need to be washing feet, there are people out there who say that you're a liberal, that you're a progressive, that you are simply dismissing the hard truths in Scripture because it may be nasty, it may be weird, it may not be cultural for us to do today, but the Bible says it and that settles it. Jesus said it. And if you don't do it, then you are a progressive who is outside the body of Christ. You're, you're an erring Christian and you need to repent. And the reason I say that's because I literally just got through studying an article by a primitive Baptist minister who wrote a whole paper on why there is a New Testament ordinance in the Bible called foot washing. And if we don't abide by that ordinance, then we're not faithful followers of Jesus Christ and we will be lost and go to hell. And so when you when you look at the fact that there are people out there who are saying you're liberal, you're progressive for doing that, it's it, it hopefully will help some people open up their eyes a little bit and say, huh, well, may, maybe maybe there is a lot more flexibility to Scripture in the way we apply it than taking a straightforward face value what I call two-step reader response approach, which I think is a very shoddy way to read the Bible. It's a very lazy way to read the Bible because it takes little to no effort. And so I think the Bible has to be much more respected than that. Well, absolutely. And the problem comes in whenever the thing, there's nothing wrong with holding a conviction. One thing I want to get out of the way right now, and I want to make abundantly clear right now is that our intention in this is not to beat up anybody that holds to this particular view or has a particular conviction about a particular topic because the people that hold to these views and perspectives, much like the primitive Baptist minister who views foot washing as a timeless ordinance to be observed by Christian for, for all time and all places, this is done by someone who has a deeply sincere desire to respect God and for someone who has a deeply sincere desire to follow what God has outlined in the scriptures as far as they have read it. This comes Absolutely. from a place of love for most people, because even whenever you and I were still entrenched within our legalistic positions and patterns of thought and behavior, we did so not out of a desire to beat people up or to show how right we were. And how wrong everyone else was, I think there may have been some subconscious elitism, at least on my part. And I think there definitely was on your part, but we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> <a little laughs> joke there. But dude, I was sincere, man. 
I mean, the Apostle Paul was sincere whenever he went and committed Christians to prison and broke up families and consented to the death of others. I was sincere in saying that if you use a musical instrument in your worship, you're bound for a devil's hell. I was sincere in that. I was sincere in saying, unless you have been baptized in the right place for the right reason, well, then you're not saved and you're not a real Christian. I was sincere in that. And those positions sound harsh to a lot of people and they can be applied in a harsh way, but it wasn't because I was a hard hearted person. It wasn't because I was an elitist. It wasn't because I wanted to show just how holy I could be. I sincerely wanted to do what was pleasing in God's sight. And that's really where the regulative principle comes from. And we keep using that term and we've given some illustrations for it. I just want to give a definition for what the regulative principle is. Because for most denominations, for most groups, communities, whatever word you want to use, how worship is conducted, it's extremely important to them. Worship is something that is not to be taken lightly. And even now in a more Christocentric position and in a place that that isn't as focused on ritual and is more focused on relationship, I still believe that worship is something that is important. But even so, the regulative principle of worship is a huge part of how evangelical Christianity views Scripture and how evangelical Christianity approaches and applies Scripture. So the regulated principle of worship is simply this. It's a Christian doctrine that finds its origins in Reformed theology. It was originally kind of postulated. There are threads of it that have been followed throughout history, and we're not going to get into all that. But it was really more or less formulated by John Calvin and Zwingli during the Protestant Reformation period. And it's the idea that God commands churches to conduct public services of worship using a certain distinctive elements that are affirmatively found in Scripture. And with that being the case, God thereby prohibits any and all other practices in public worship. So the idea is, is that God has regulated the worship of himself by Christians in their worship services. There is a particular way that God expects to be worshipped. There is a particular way that God desires to be worshipped. And if you worship God in a way that deviates from his desires and his wishes, then you sin and you err. And in some groups and in some denominations, these are things that will put you into heaven. These are things that will keep you out of heaven. If you deviate from that regulation and you deviate from what God has decreed or regulated, well, then you err egregiously and you do so at the peril of your own eternal soul. And we've talked some about this in previous episodes. We touched on it when we talked about the intent of the law versus the letter of the law. We talked about it with Matt Dabbs a few weeks ago when we talked about legalism. We've discussed this when we've talked about, this is something that we have touched on in most of the episodes that we have discussed and in most of the discussions we've had, because this is ingrained within the DNA of the movement that we came from. This is ingrained within evangelical theology. This idea of the regulative principle is something that we are all familiar with, and this is now the term that we use to to apply it. And I'd like to read this quote, if I could, by Dr. Ligon Duncan, who is a professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. He says this about the regulative principle. He says, the regulative principle is simply the assertion that we must worship God in the way that he has revealed himself and the way he has commanded us to worship him in his word.
We need to worship God according to Scripture. Our worship needs to be directed by Scripture. The form and the content of our worship needs to be in accord with the Bible, informed by the Bible, and warranted by the Bible. It needs to be founded in the Scriptures. That is an emphasis that is so important today. And the thing is, is I don't necessarily disagree with what Dr. Duncan says in his quote, but there are problems that come whenever this is approached in a rigid fashion that leaves no, um, what's the word I'm looking for? No leeway in any direction. It, It makes the narrow way far more narrow. It takes that narrow path that Jesus talked about and it makes it a greasy uphill tightrope that can become impossible to walk if it's followed to its logical conclusion. And there, there are good things about this that we'll get into in a moment, but that's one of the big dangers that that arises within the regulated principle itself is that it lends itself and almost demands a legalistic approach to it. When we were talking, I think it was earlier this week, just about all the different divisions within the churches of Christ, not within Christendom as a whole, but just the churches of Christ. And this this is one of those presuppositional approaches to the scripture that I believe leads to just more and more and more division. Because when people say that they take the Bible seriously, they're implying a couple things. They're implying that, number one, those who disagree with them are not taking the Bible seriously. So if you come to a different conclusion, you must not be taking the Bible seriously like they are. But when someone says, well, you're not taking the Bible seriously— they're, they're they're also implying that the way that they interpret Scripture is the only way to interpret Scripture, and it leaves no other possibilities. It leaves no exactly. other interpretations. And something that I find just extremely ironic when you look at the New Testament is that there's a lot of conflicting information in the New Testament. And before everyone just says, oh, what what are you talking about? I'm going to never listen to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace again. I can't believe Kevin said that. When I I say conflicting, what I mean is that Paul oftentimes writes different things to different churches, and if you were to put that side by side, it conflicts. And so we can't take the New Testament, put it together in a law book, and say we have to follow the New Testament because the New Testament tells us to do different things. It tells the Christians to do different things. For example, just a few, just just so you know exactly what I'm talking about here, when you look at Paul writing to the church at Corinth, he literally tells them, do not be circumcised. If, if, if you're now a Christian and you're not circumcised, do not be circumcised. And he didn't have Titus circumcised, but he had Timothy circumcised. Well, if we were to apply what Paul said to the church at Corinth, to what he did to Timothy, Paul literally violated his own law because he he did two different things. He instructed two different things. That's not a contradiction. It's that Paul is dealing with different situations. Not all situations call for the same action. Not all problems have the same solution. Not all the questions have the same answer in the Bible. We see this also with things like like widows marrying, for example. When Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, hey, widows, you need to marry. If you've lost your husband, it's better to marry. You need to marry. I'm I'm encouraging you in my judgment, it's better to marry. What does he say to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7? In my judgment, if you're a widow, you don't need to marry. Do not marry. Well, that is conflicting if you were putting that side by side. But when you understand that the New Testament is not a law book, the New Testament is not a Christian constitution where we are to parse out every verse and come up with as many commands as we can, 
then all of a sudden we see the Bible's not a book of contradictions. It's a book that gives different instruction for different situations. And sometimes that can be completely different, even contradictory instruction in the sense of if you were to put it side by side. But when you put it within its respective context, while it's something different, it does make sense for the specific situation. And so that's one of the things that really has opened up my eyes is to see that all these things in the New Testament, they weren't written to be like laws. And by the way, when you look at the New Testament letters, which they are letters, you know, I I have to remind myself all the time, God did not give us the Bible. <laughs> he didn't give us the Bible in the sense that we have it today. And God didn't give us the New Testament in the sense in which we have it today, where it's one volume. Back then, as if you were a Christian living in the first century, there were letters that were being circulated. There were letters that were being written to your congregation by Paul or Peter, and you were reading these letters, or someone was reading these letters to you. But keep in mind that from the establishment of the church, somewhere between AD 30 to 33, to when the first inspired letter that we have recorded was written, was almost 20 years, 20 to 25 years. So a lot of Christians lived and died without even having a New Testament, without even having a single New Testament letter at all. The first gospel account wasn't even written until the 60s. So you had like two to three decades of no Bible, no New Testament Bible, should I say. You did have the Old Testament scriptures, but no New Testament letters. So we, we have to consider all these things when we're reading the New Testament, when we're trying to figure out what is the objective of the Bible? What is the point? What is the purpose of the Bible? And when we do that, at least for me, it's really helped me to put things in perspective. And before I just rush ahead with a Bible verse that says, well, look, Paul says that, uh, you know, women are to do this or women are to do this or men are to do this, or you have to greet one another with a holy kiss or you have all of a sudden I stop and say, well, wait a minute, how am I to apply this in my culture, in my context, in my situation, in my life 2,000 years later? And that's really the greater question that we're looking for. And that, that regulative principle, it doesn't do that. It simply says, well, the Bible says it, now let's go and apply it. And I think that when you do that, there are so many steps that are missed in the process. Well, you have to get, be arbitrary with it. You have to be arbitrary because like you said at the top of this, man, nobody is just doing what the Bible says because bro, let me tell you something. I love you to pieces. I mean, whenever I see you, we're going to shake hands. I'm going to give you a big old hug around the neck, but I am not going to greet you with a holy kiss, brother. I love you, but I ain't kissing you. It just ain't going to happen. And, but, but we see in, in Romans, Paul say, greet one another with a holy kiss. I mean, that is an explicit statement that is made. That's an explicit commandment. And you have to be arbitrary when the regulative principle is applied. No one in America, at least to my knowledge, greets one another with a holy kiss. Dr. Dallas Burdett in one of his books writes about a church in Pennsylvania, I believe it was, that was a church of, it was a one cup church of Christ, I believe it was. And I'm, I may be saying this all wrong, but all of his stuff can be found on freedominchrist.net now. Brother Daniel Rogers, he's put a lot of his materials together and has made all that available. And to all of our listeners, it is definitely worth checking out. He's got a lot of really good stuff there. But he writes of this church and they took that passage, greet one another with a holy kiss to its logical conclusion. That's they. That's something that they did. They greeted one another with a holy kiss at the end of services. That's what they would do. 
And this was way back in the day, way back years and years and years ago. And there was a black gentleman who started worshiping there. And this is an all white congregation. He's the only person of color there. Well, at the end of services, when it came time to greet with a holy kiss, they decided that they would abandon that practice because nobody wanted to kiss him. And that was, yeah, well, this was back during the days, you know, before desegregation occurred. This, this was back in, you know, a even more racially charged climate than what we live in now. So you have to become arbitrary. The point is, is that no one does that, but we'll go to the Bible and we'll say, because we follow the scriptures and we follow command example, necessary inference, God has regulated worship. God has regulated how we are to do X, Y, and Z. And so in order to extrapolate what God expects of us and what God has regulated, we look for a command from God or the apostles. We look for examples, binding examples of what they did. Well, like you said a moment ago, how do we know what's binding and what isn't? And then we use necessary inference whenever there's not really clear direction or instruction. Well, then we'll use necessary inference to extrapolate from Scripture what it is that's being communicated between the lines. Well, and and if you're cool with talking about this just for a few minutes, um, because I think that stopping here, we don't really have much of this in our notes, but I, I want to just camp on this command example necessary inference for just a moment. Let's get it. Let's get it. And, and really try to break this down so that people who are listening can see that this is something that we really took extremely serious. And there's a lot of people today who take this extremely serious. And so we're not knocking anyone's intent. We're not saying that people out there who believe this are uneducated or they're ignorant. There are people far more intelligent than I am who believe this, but I believe that they have bought in to a false approach to the Bible. And when you buy into that false approach, we we talk about presuppositions all the time. Presuppositions are rarely challenged. Um, Our minds tend to automatically fill in the blanks when we have presuppositions. For example, if I were to say that I, um, I flew from Oklahoma to Alabama this weekend, what does your mind automatically think of? You're getting on a plane and you're flying to Alabama on a plane. You're sitting down in a seat, in a really tiny seat. You may or may not get a little baggie of peanuts and a tiny cup of Coke. Yeah, so if if, if our minds automatically, oh, well, Kevin flew somewhere. Okay, well, actually, I was just speaking figuratively, and what I meant is I got in my car and I drove really fast. Or I actually uh, rented a hot air balloon and took a nice hot air balloon trip. Our minds don't <laughs> naturally go to those things because we are, presu- we are our, our presuppositions, they sometimes hinder us from having an open mind because we don't even think about challenging those things. We don't even think about considering something otherwise because it just becomes mental habits. And so once you have bought into this command example necessary inference doctrine, you don't even question if whether or not it's valid or not, because it is. That's just the way it is. That's the world you're operating within in your own mind. So you don't even question that. And when someone asks me today, well, Kevin, what what made you change your mind on instrumental music? Because I had a debate in 2000. In 12, affirming that using instrumental music in worship is wrong. People ask me, well, what Bible verse, you know, what Bible verse changed your mind? And I said, it wasn't just one Bible verse. It was my approach to the Bible that caused me to change my mind on this whole issue. And that that's why it can be sometimes very difficult to talk to people who have these approaches to scripture when you differ with, with them on how you need to be reading and applying the Bible to begin with. And so the first fundamental flaw, and I want people to listen to this very carefully, 
the 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 first and I would say the most important flaw that can be recognized in approaching the Bible through command, example, necessary inference is this. Are you ready, Lee? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Let's think about this for a moment. The idea of a command, example, and necessary inference, I believe, is false because it presupposes itself and is self-defeating. There is no command, example, or necessary inference in the Scripture of approaching the Bible through command, example, or necessary inference. (laughs) By its own admonition, by its own logic, through its own systemized way of concluding things, it would be an unauthorized way of reading Scripture. And that was the first thing that really just, I, I found like, wow, I am presupposing this whole method on how to filter the Bible when this whole method is not even found in Scripture to begin with. And we're going to look at some a few passages because there's a few people probably listening who go, wait a minute, Kevin, what about this verse and that verse? But that whole system in and of itself, it's not found in Scripture. It's never there. And that's why it's not consistently applied. When someone says, well, we follow the, the examples in, in Scripture. No, you don't. No, you don't. You may follow some of them, but you don't follow all of them. You don't, you, you know, and people talk about this all the time, like, well, the Lord's Supper, the reason why we come together on the first day of the week is because Acts 20, verse 7. Well, do you do you have the Lord's Supper or do you have the Lord's brunch? Because the only examples that I find in Scripture are having the Lord's Supper in the evening time. Hence the name Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. So where is the book, chapter, and verse that authorizes someone to partake of the Lord's Supper any other meal other than supper time, other than the evening? And if you're taking a command, example, necessary inference approach, the answer is it's not there. It doesn't exist. But here's what we go. We go, well, that's that's an expedient, Kevin. That's an expedient. That that's that's not that's not something that is necessary. It's only binding examples. And here we go back with being arbitrary again. Now we're going to pick and choose what's binding and what's not. Here's something else. Here's another reason why I changed my view on the Lord's Supper, talking about the Lord's Supper. We we want to go to Acts 20, verse 7 or possibly Acts 2 to say, this is the day they did it. Sunday's the day they did it. This is when we must do it. And we must do it every every first day of the week because it's Sunday. So I was talking to a friend of mine and having this conversation. I said, well, what about having Lord's Supper on a Thursday night? Because that's a New Testament example. That's when Jesus did it. And they said, well, no, no, that that's before Acts 2. That was before the establishment of the church. And that was, that was just Jesus teaching them about the Lord's Supper. And what 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 you know he was going they were going to do. I said, so you don't think Jesus actually had? They don't. You don't think they actually partook Lord's Supper? We can't use anything that Jesus taught as as an example for us today. And they go, well, no, of course you can, because that's what Paul did in First Corinthians eleven. Paul alluded back to the taking of the Lord, partaking of the Lord's Supper from Jesus in the Gospel accounts. I said, okay. I said, so obviously Paul's using that as an example. I said, so can I use it as an example to take of the Lord's Supper on Thursday night? Because that's an example that Paul used himself. And they go, well, no, you can't do that. That's 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 not right. You can't do that. <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, well, tell me then why do you why do you believe that we have to have unleavened bread? Can it be anything other than unleavened bread? No, it, it has to be unleavened bread. Why does it have to be unleavened bread? Where in the New Testament does it say it has to be unleavened bread? Well, that's the only example we have from from. Uh, Jesus is is unleavened bread. I said, so let me get this straight. There's no example of unleavened bread that we that we read about, other than the fact that 
we see in the, in the gospel accounts that Jesus partook of unleavened bread. So therefore, that's your binding example, correct? Yeah, that's correct, Kevin. Okay, but I can't use that same example to take of the Lord's Supper when Jesus partook of it. No, that's that's right. You you can't you can't do that one. So it's this uh, just very much picking and choosing what examples we can bind, when we can bind them, how we can bind them. It has to be Sunday, but it doesn't have to be Sunday night. Um, it has to be unleavened bread because Jesus did it, but you can't do it the day Jesus did it. And and all of a sudden, it just becomes so convoluted, so complicated, you finally come to the conclusion, I think, after a period of time, if you're if you're really starting to be open-minded to studying this and trying to be consistent with it, you realize you can't be consistent with it. It's not a good approach to Scripture because, as I said, by its own admonition, it's an unauthorized way of studying the Bible to begin with. Well, and the biggest issue with all of that, like you said, is just how arbitrary it is because, you know, and whenever you're talking about the Lord's Supper, I can't help but think of the one cup approach to the Lord's Supper, which I still see a tremendous amount of value in. I still see a tremendous amount of theological um, for lack of a better term, punch to it. I can still see a lot of that symbolism there. But the question is, is why do I see that symbolism? Why do I see that theological import to using to everyone partaking from one common cup? Why do I still see that? Why do I see it in the first place? And it's because we inherit so many of those positions. It comes back to that. Whenever you're told that the theological impact of all partaking of one cup that represents the one new covenant that Christ died to establish. And that one cup contains the, the fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And that blood was shed for the covenant and the covenant and the blood, you know, they find their impact within one another. The covenant is nothing without the blood and the blood does nothing. If it doesn't ratify a covenant, it's whenever you're told that and it's ingrained into your psyche, it's it's easy to see that. It, it's it's like I see the theological impact that those symbols can have in their observance because I was taught their impact. But to others that don't have that one cup background that I came from, they're not going to see it the same way I do. And being able to take those blinders off and realizing that the impact that I see there is largely because it's something that I was taught and that there are other people who aren't going to share that presupposition that I have, that's huge. But it, it goes back to the same thing. It's like, well, we use one cup because that's what Jesus used in the Lord's Supper. He used one cup. And I'm like, well, what about Luke's account in which he takes the cup and then he takes the cup after supper, talking about the Passover. You'd start digging into that, and now we're getting into the Lord's Supper, and that's not well. And, and but 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 here, but. but here's the point that you're making that is so powerful to people listening. Is I grew up in the in what most people would deem the mainstream churches of Christ, and you grew up in what most people would call the one cup churches of Christ. And I, as you know, had a debate on the one cup of a formal debate on the one cup in 2009 with. Um, a, a, a great man that you personally knew and worked with for uh, for many, many, many years, Johnny Elmore, and it's it that in and of itself is a demonstration and a commentary on where this leads. Because here I am condemning people for not following the examples of Scripture and saying, "Well, I can't fellowship you because you're not you're you're not following all the examples found in the New Testament." But then I debate a man like like Brother Johnny, and what does he say? He goes, "Well." 
Brother Kevin is a good man who's following a lot of the examples of Scripture, but he's not following all of them because he's using multiple containers for the Lord's Supper and multiple loaves. And so, therefore, if he's going to be consistent and he's going to take the Bible serious, he's got to follow all the examples. And this just goes on and on and on. It's it's an every, And then that's when I said, well, do you partake the Lord's Supper on Sunday evening? Do you partake of the Lord's Supper in an upper room? Because the only examples we have of people partaking of the Lord's Supper is an upper room. And I have known of congregations, or at least have read about congregations back in the 50s and 60s, who believe that in order to partake of the Lord's Supper faithfully, they had to do so in an upper room. And so they would have a, they actually um, created a basement instead of building a, a two-story. They just created like a little basement underneath their church building. And they said, well, technically now we're in the upper room of our building, so we're following the example of Scripture. And <laughs> this, this and, and people listen to this and think that's absurd. But look, if you're really trying to be consistent, and by the way, those who are the most absurd are usually the ones who are the most sincerest and who are doing are the most sincere. And they're the ones who are who are really trying to follow God because yeah. they're the ones who are trying to take it to its logical conclusion. They're the ones the one I've met people before who said, I believe it was Carl Ketcher side. I've got to pull out the manuscript. But um, years ago, I mean, you know, when years and years and years when he was just super duper duper conservative, as we would say. He, he actually went as far to say, and, I, and it may not be him, so I, I don't want to exactly quote, I forgot, but it was one of those old, older preachers back in that time, said that if uh, it, it was wrong to take money out of your own pocket and, and buy chewing gum, because that was, that was a, uh, a, um, a worldly way, I forgot exactly how he worded it. He did it much more eloquently than I am. But basically, he was saying that's a worldly way to spend your money. You're not being a good steward when you take your hard-earned money and spend it on something as worldly as chewing gum. And so he went as far to say there's no authority to use money on any recreational events. You, you don't have that. You can't use money on any entertainment because the Bible never authorizes entertainment. It doesn't. It, it, there's no book, chapter, and verse for entertainment, and therefore you can't spend money or your efforts or time on anything recreational. Of course, even with that, there's a lot of debates. Well, okay, well, can you play sports? Is that exercise or is that recreational? And it, it, it led into all these other divisions. So if you're really trying to be consistent with this, let's be consistent with it. Let's talk about it. Let's let's not just say, here's what I believe and leave it at that. If you're going to take command example necessary inference to its logical conclusion, which, as I said, it's an unauthorized way by its own account of studying the Bible. But even if you were to study the Bible that way, it's going to lead you to in all sorts of biz- bizarre, inconsistent, conflicting conclusions, because that's not the way the New Testament and the Bible's written. Well, and with with the Sinai hermeneutic, as it's commonly abbreviated, command, example, necessary inference, C-E-N-I, Sinai, it, it, like you said, the presupposition that's baked in, the, what's never considered is this. It, there's, there's a lot of, how do I want to phrase this? There's a lot of sincerity that comes from the mind of someone who wants to follow God. And in order to do that, they look for the commandments that God has given. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Looking for examples as to how those practices were carried out and being able to infer and read between the lines, all of that appears to be worthwhile on the surface. But the presuppositions that come baked into that, like you flew to Alabama. Well, did you, you know, drive really fast down the road? I mean, I've used that term before. Man, we went to the drag strip with my buddies, Oldsmobile Cutlass, and we were flying. We ran the quarter in, in uh, low tens. 
whenever you look at these commands, okay, so we, we look at the scriptures and we need a commandment from God to do what it is that we do. Okay, well, that commandment that God gave, is that a particular commandment to a particular event? Like you said earlier, when you have the Apostle Paul telling widows in Ephesus to marry and widows in Corinth not to marry, is that a particular command for a particular time and a particular place, or is it a universal command for all time and all places? How do we make that distinction? How do we make that delineation? And whenever you look at examples, you gave some beautiful, beautiful examples of examples and the inconsistency of how we apply those. How do we know that this is a binding example versus a non-binding example? Taking the Lord's Supper on Sunday versus washing feet, because you have the same type of language that's being used in, in both cases. With necessary inference, how do we know it's a necessary inference? And I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. I know I've mentioned it to you. I had a brother who expressed some concern whenever you and I started this podcast that I was cavorting with a false teacher. And he, um, we got <laughs> together and, and we had a, a big, long discussion about this and how the Bible was approached. And ultimately, that's where our disagreement came down to is the approach to Scripture had fundamentally changed for myself versus how he approached it. And he gave a really good example of what a necessary inference is. And it, it really rings true with this winter weather that we've had. If you look outside one morning when you wake up and there's snow on the ground, I mean, are you going to think that the snow came up from under the ground and kind of sprouted through the dirt and manifested itself that way? I mean, were there little yard gnomes that came out in a dump truck and dumped snow all over your yard? No, you're going to understand that that snow fell from the sky. You're going to understand that it was cold. You can reasonably and necessarily infer that it was cold, that the dew point was at a certain level, the humidity was at a certain level, and the conditions were right for snow to fall out of the sky and land and accumulate on the ground. That's a necessary inference. There's no other explanation for what you see in front of you. The problem is, is that you have a really hard time delineating what a necessary inference is whenever you look at the scriptures themselves. Whenever you look at the scriptures, one of the things that we look at, and we'll pick on instrumental music for a second, is that in Colossians 3 and 16, Ephesians 5, 19, you have the command given to sing and make melody in your heart. And so we say, well, that necessarily infers that we, you know, the commandment is to sing and that necessarily infers that musical instruments are excluded from that. And we're not, let's not really go down that rabbit trail too hard, but that presupposes that singing in and of itself is prohibitive and exclusive of everything else. That presupposes that, um, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3 and 16 is, is being discussed within the context of a worship service in and of itself that presupposes all of these other things. You can hardly necessarily infer that that's the only reasonable conclusion that one can come to reading those passages. And so with all of this within the regulative principle, it arises from a sincere heart. It arises from a desire to be pleasing unto God and to honor God and to honor Scripture and to respect God and respect Scripture. But in practice, it's just really hard to make work. Um, some of the texts, I'd like to discuss some of these, if it's okay with you, unless you have any other comments for what we've talked about so far. I'd like no, to. No, no, let's go ahead and get into them. Yeah. Well, some of the texts, and we won't read all of these, but the examples that those within the churches of Christ really, really like to use. Um, we'll, we'll go into some of those, but whenever you take this regulated principle and you apply it in an extremely strict 
but inconsistent way, what you end up arriving at is a conclusion that anything involved in worship that isn't found in the Bible is unauthorized and it's unscriptural. If it's unscriptural, it's sin, so you don't need to do it. But we're hardly consistent in that. But that doesn't stop a lot of people from finding examples to make the case for them. Nabab and Abihu is a favorite one. Nadab and Abihu, they were the sons of Aaron. For those listening, if you grew up in the churches of Christ, you hear Nadab and Abihu, you know exactly what's going on. You know exactly what we're about to say. They were the sons of Aaron, and they offered strange fire to the Lord, that which God had not authorized, and he burned them up for it. The next example that comes to mind for a lot of people is Uzzah. And Uzzah, you might hear that and think, well, is that like a character in a Dr. Seuss book or something? No. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. Oh, man. They, they had captured the Ark of the Covenant in battle with Israel. They had taken it to their temple um, in, I can't remember the town, but it was the Temple of Dagon. And the statue had fallen over a couple of times and it had broken up. And then God smites the Philistines in that town with hemorrhoids. It's a really amusing story that's found over there in the book of Samuel. Well, the Philistines get fed up with all the nonsense that having the ark has brought them. So they put it on a cart. They send it into Israel. And that cart is found in a, in a prophet's home. And you may know which prophet that is. It's, it's not coming to my mind at this point. But in any case, they realize where the ark is in Israel. And David wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. So they put it on a cart, they get it loaded up and they're traveling and they hit a big old bump in the road and it looks like the cart's going to fall off. So Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark to stabilize it, to keep it from falling off the cart. And Uzzah, he's struck dead right then and there, kills over, dies, D-E-D, dead, as we're fond of saying in uh, Oklahoma. (laughs) Uzzah is struck dead. And the idea communicated here is, is, well, look at Uzzah. He had a good intention. He had his heart in the right place, but God declared how he wanted the ark to be carried. He wanted it put on staves. He wanted the priest from the tribe of Levi to carry it. They put it on an ox cart. That wasn't authorized. God regulated how the ark was to be carried, and Uzzah messed up when he touched it, and God struck him dead for it. Same with Nadab and Abihu. God regulated how he wanted the incense to be offered. They offered strange fire. We see Saul and the Amalekites whenever... Saul was commanded to go and kill the Amalekites and kill everything and everyone. And he spares the livestock. He spares King Agag. He offers up sacrifices. We see Abel's sacrifice offered from faith. The tabernacle being built according to the pattern goes on and on and on. All of these are passages that are used to declare that God takes worship seriously and he regulates and did regulate how he wanted worship to be offered. But what are some of the issues with that, Kevin? Well, I think you did a good job. You've pretty much convinced me back to where I was before. So thank y'all for listening, and uh, <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go we'll go off air and get back to preaching. Uh, okay, so there there's so many things that are fundamentally wrong with with that approach to scripture, and and I want to slowly unpack those. For starters, it's very selective. So I, I grew the, the passages you uh, that you just said, and there are of course others too. But the main two, the main two that I filtered everything through was Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah. The, I mean that that pretty much is how I filtered God. That that's who God was. God to me was someone that if I did one thing wrong, like Nadab and Abihu or Uzzah, that was it. That I mean God God is just literally 
waiting with his hand on the button to press and zap me when I do one thing wrong. And that is really the way that I viewed everything else in scripture. It was absolutely terrifying. And if if someone was not doing something right, people would say, well, hey, what about Nadab and Abihu? Or if someone was questioning, well, I'm not sure. I don't really know if it is wrong. Well, wait a minute. What about Nadab and Abihu? What about Uzzah? And especially when you get into the intent, because I used to preach sermons on these uh these uh, stories all the time. And I would say, look, it doesn't matter how good your heart is. It doesn't matter your intent, because if you're not doing the right thing, if you're not doing exactly the things that God told you to do in the the specific ways he told you to do them, this is how he is going to respond to us ultimately. He may not strike us dead right now, but boy, he's going to he's going to put us in hell and torture us forever and ever if we just get one thing wrong. <laughs> and so it was it was really just through that whole that whole filter is how I read scripture. And I talk about this in my book, A Different Kind of Poison, How Legalism Destroys Grace. Because the first thing is what is what is missing from that list are other passages that seem to talk about a loving God, a patient God, a, a God who cares about us, a God that is much more concerned with our hearts than he is our, our actions. For example, some of those passages and, and this is, if you're listening to this and you grew up in the Church of Christ, I can almost guarantee you, you know who Nadab and Abihu is. You've at least heard the story. What do you know about Eleazar and Ithamar? Yeah. And the, 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 the people that I've spoken to who are still caught up in a lot of legalistic thinking, and I'm not saying that in, in a, to be antagonistic, I just mean in looking at Scripture through the lenses of law, they have never heard of Eleazar and Ithamar. They'll say, well, who's that? And I'll say, well, that's Aaron's other two sons. Well, where are they found in Scripture? In the following verses, right after Nadab and Abihu. <laughs> and they end up taking that sacrifice and eating it in an unholy place and are accepted by God. God's grace covers them. Moses covers them. Moses excuses that. Even though it's a violation of law, they're excused. And, and God then, approves of it. Yeah, and God. And then you go to passages like Second Chronicles thirty with Hezekiah, and he is the known as the Restoration King, and he's trying to get things back the way they need to, and and they're going to have this great celebration of the Passover. The only problem is, is that there are a lot of people who are partaking of the Passover, and they've not been cleansed according to the law. And the text tells us in Second Chronicles thirty that they partook of the Passover contrary to the law, but God. Uh, accepted that worship. Why? Because Hezekiah said, look to their heart and accept them based upon their heart. God says, yes, I will. And, 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 and not only that, but they ended up taking the Passover an extra week, which is another violation of the law. And instead of God condemning them and striking them all dead, what you have happening is it's called the greatest celebration up till that point that had ever been among God's people. So the greatest celebration that had ever been up until that point was a time when they broke the law and they worshiped contrary to the law, but their heart was in the right place and God accepted them for that. Or what about passages um, like Naaman, Second Second uh, Kings 5? I'm sure we're all familiar with Naaman. He, he's a guy who dipped in, in the River Jordan seven times and everybody wants to talk about baptism. But when you look at the passage and you keep reading, two interesting things take place. He acknowledges that Jehovah God is the true God. And in doing so, he asked Elisha if he can take some of the dirt from the ground and carry with him. 
And, and, and of course, Elijah said, tells him he can. He doesn't correct his thinking on that because the thinking is you worship gods in their territory or their temples or their places. You had to be in, in, in their ground, per se, or, or yeah, so to sacred say. space theology. And so, yeah. so that's exactly what he did. He took some land. But furthermore, he said, well, wait a minute. I've got a master. And I escort my master into the temple. And when we go into the temple, we bow down and we worship this false god. Can you pre-pardon me? And you know what Elisha says? He goes, no, of course not, God. Get him right now. Boom. And then he dies. <laughs> nope. So what happens? <laughs> Elisha said, yeah, of course I'll pre-pardon you. Yeah, yeah, of course. So you, so, so what he was saying is you can go into a, 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 a idolatrous temple, which, by the way, if you're not just a Jew, but if you were a proselyte or a stranger, which now he would have been, he would have been among them because he would have converted, then you weren't to go into, in, into pagan temples. You weren't. You certainly weren't to bow down or think or allow anybody to think that you were worshiping God. And of course, people say, "Well, wait a minute, though." Naaman wouldn't actually be worshiping God in his heart, no. But he would be pretending like he was worshiping this false god in his heart. And so he pre-pardons him. He says, "Yes, you can do that." And then we think of stories, um, you know, like uh, like for example, I, I I really when you talk about this one, this 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 really gets to the heart of trying to figure out who God is, and I think the answer is clear when you look at the narrative arc, but you have Peter. Three times, three times he denies Jesus. Three times. God gives him three chances, and he denies, and guess what? If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before yeah, my no, Father who is in heaven. Peter got shuttled on the bullet train straight to hell. That's what happened. <laughs> and and no, that's of course not what happened. You have, <laughs> you have Peter who, who denied him three times, and then no consequence, literally no consequence. He was not punished. He was not tortured. Um, oh, and by the way, this is an interesting side point. When Jesus was resurrected, he didn't say, Peter, you sinned. And in order to repent, you got to pay the consequence. You need to go back and tell, tell the Roman officials that you lied and you really knew me so that you would, you, you know, you've got to be punished for this. Jesus didn't say that's what repentance required. Jesus didn't condemn them on the spot. What he said is, you made a mistake, Peter. We all make mistakes. In essence, you're forgiven. And y'all are you going to be forgiven. You're going to be the one to usher in the kingdom for me on the day of Pentecost. And you're going to be known as one of the pillars of the faith. But then you have Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't deny Jesus. No. They gave money to the church, which, by the way, they gave money to Christians. It wasn't that they didn't give at all. They just lied. They fibbed a little. They told a little white lie. And what did God do? What we see from the context is they were punished and they they died. Now that in and of itself, I want to talk about maybe in a future episode of what really happened there. But yeah. either either way, either way, what you see is if you're not careful, we can create a God that is a schizophrenic God. That yes. one day he is having grace and mercy towards those violating his law on a massive, in a massive way. But then in another account, someone just kind of slipped up. And God is is putting them to death or having them killed or whatever. Somebody else is killing them on behalf of the law. And you wonder, what's going on here? And that is a deep conversation that we're not going to have time to talk about. But um, once again, another shameless plug for my book. I'm going to really be talking about a lot of this in my book. So if you're like, man, I want to get into depth. This is what my book's about right here, is figuring out how do we how do we navigate and struggle with all this. But the fact is, we first have to admit it's there. You can't read Nadab and Abihu without reading Eleazar and Ithamar. You can't read about Uzzah without reading about Hezekiah. You can't, you, you can't take one without the other. You have to put all these together and then figure out what is going on 
what is taking place, what is the bigger narrative arc, and how am I to conclude all these things? Which, interestingly enough, stories like Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah, they're 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 pretty rare. Th- those are those are the exception to the rules. The majority of the stories in the New Testament and Old Testament have to do with God's grace and God's mercy. Um, we see this with many of the kings when they're not tearing down the high places, but God still blesses them in spite of that. It'll say that they were faithful to God, except they didn't tear down the high places, but they but they were still blessed by God and God still accepted them. So you just see so many times of, of, of these events happening in Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and that I was never taught those things. Growing up, I, I was never taught about the grace of God. I was never taught about all these people who had the right heart but did the wrong thing and were still accepted by God. And th- those are things that never entered into my filter at all. And so to start with, when someone looks at certain passages and they filter their whole Bible through those those passages, which I did for many years, you're going to come come out with a lopsided God. You're not going to come out with a true God. And 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 that that is to me the biggest problem with that, but also just looking at the context of these passages to figure out what's really going on in each of these situations and if there's something greater than what we may see at face value going on that we have to consider before making a conclusion. Because people just read Nadab and Abayu, man, and they're like, all right, that's my God, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and it's with for every, like, like you just said, man, for every Nadab and Abihu, there's an Eliezer and an Ithamar, and there are far more Eliezers and Ithamars than there are Nadabs and Abihus, which is really refreshing. But I think one of the reasons why that we don't hear about Eliezer and Ithamar, because bro, I had read and I had preached and I had heard Nadab and Abihu. I couldn't tell you how many times. And it wasn't until, you know, when my first introduction to Eliezer and Ithamar were? Where? When I read your book, A Different Kind of Poison, How Legalism Destroys Grace, <laughs> that's the first time I had ever read their names and never heard of them. You bring them up and I'm like, what is this? So I had to go back over there to the Bible and look it up. And I'm like, well, holy smokes, there it is right there. That's wild. Oh, and, and then go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, this is what's so interesting, too, about it. And I realize this, this with myself. When we see passages where God's grace prevails... Those are the ones we tend to minimize. Yes. So so even once we know, like people who disagree with me to this day, who have read my book or who read those passages, they'll say, well, yeah, okay, they're there, but still I'm going to filter through Nate Abbott Value. In other words, why why are the passages where God's grace reigns supreme are the ones we're minimizing? Why yeah. why, why are we always going to typically side on the ones where God's raining down his fire on folks. Why are we not saying, well, wait a minute, but what about all these other passages about God? Well, yeah, they're there too, but I'm going to take this. And and, and we dismiss, or, or perhaps not dismiss, but minimize the impact those other passages have. And, and that is what I used to do forever. Even when I first started reading those passages, I'm like, yeah, but you know, that was just an exception. When, when God's grace reigns supreme, that was an exception to the rule. No, it wasn't. That's who God is. You know, I think of other, other stories like Joshua, where he wasn't supposed to make a covenant with the, uh, the Gibeonites, and they ended up deceiving Joshua and saying that they they were just uh, weary travelers and that you know they they wanted to make a covenant in order to to get their protection and instead of Joshua consulting God Joshua went ahead and made this covenant and then it came came to come to find out that they were the Gibeonites 
And God didn't condemn them for making this covenant, even though it was explicitly stated in the law not to. God expected them to keep that unlawful covenant because that's what you do when you make a covenant, even if it wasn't shouldn't have been made to begin with. Now you need to protect those people. You need to care for them. You need to love them. And so God expected them to continue to do so even 300 years later when King Saul broke that covenant by killing some of the men. God came back and said, wait a minute. Israel made a covenant with them, and that covenant needs to be kept, uh, even though it shouldn't have been entered into. It was entered into, and it needed to be kept. So you see all these different stories. I mean, they're they're left and right. Rahab, we we see Rahab who lied and was justified because of her faith. And people say, well, there's a difference between her lying and her faith. No, because her lying is what demonstrated her faith. Same thing with the midwives in Exodus chapter 1. I'm just spitting off these from the top of my head because I'm in the middle of writing my book, so I've discussed a lot of these. But, I mean, you see the midwives. And, by the way, go to 1 Samuel when God actually tells Samuel to deceive Saul. He actually tells him to lie. Well, 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 God, what do I do? Well, just tell him you're there to make a sacrifice. That wasn't his real intention. That wasn't his real purpose. He was telling him to deceive. So all of a sudden now, God is God is 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 a lot more than who I thought he was. Why? Because I'm reading more than three or four Bible verses to understand who he is. I'm reading more than just the stories that go ahead and feel my presuppositional desire. And now I'm starting to say, whoa, there's a whole lot more. And that's the problem with, with doctrinal conditioning far too often is, you know, you pointed that out too. It took I, I had preached sermon after sermon on Nadab and Abihu. I wasn't familiar with Eleazar and Ithamar. Why is that? It's not like it wasn't there. It was in the same chapter for crying out loud. It was in the next verse for crying out loud. That shows we're not studying the Bible. We're studying our views and we're going to the Bible to fill in the gaps to prove our views correctly instead of going to the Bible to find our views. When we find the thing that we want, when we find the thing that conforms to the ideology that we currently possess, there's no reason to read any further. Why would you read any further? Because if I read any further, God is a God of justice, which he is, but God is a God that will mete out justice in very, very harsh and very real ways, consuming his enemies and those who refuse to adhere to him or take him seriously with fire from on high. That's the kind of God that I serve. That's the kind of God I'm looking for in scripture. And lo and behold, when I find that God, there's no need for me to look any further. But the other night, I lost my wallet. Couldn't find my wallet anywhere. Had no idea where it was. It had fallen out of my pocket, and it was under the van in the garage. Whenever I found my wallet, I quit looking for it. I didn't need to look for it anymore. Whenever we have that doctrinal conditioning, and I like that word. I like that phrase. It's a very um, appropriate phrase. Whenever we have a particular viewpoint of who God is, and we have a particular viewpoint that we are wanting to espouse, and we've talked about this on this podcast multiple times, if once we find it, we don't need to look any further. And as a result, our spiritual growth is stunted. We're not challenged to grow. We're not challenged with those passages that fly in the face of what we think and with what we know and with what we have accepted as truth and have inherited as truth for so many years and for so long. And it's way easier to operate within that world than it is to confront those presuppositions and the conditioning that has been ingrained within our minds. Well, and that gets back to the question of how do we read the Bible then? If 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 it's someone, if I was having a conversation with somebody right now and, and I just gave them that laundry list of verses to, for lack of better words, at least balance things out and expand the conversation of who God is, people would say, okay, well, Kevin, what do we do then with everything? 
now you're asking the right questions, right? <laughs> because th- those now are the questions we're going to have to start struggling with. We're going to have to start wrestling with. When you have a a, a God who says that, uh, or, or at least is we perceive in Scripture to be a God who says, I want you to go in and I want you to, to take women and I want you to slice the pregnant women open and rip out their babies and I want you to kill them all. I want you to kill them all. And then we're going, how could anybody, anybody today have an innocent baby killed? Well, how about the God you serve? Let's start with that one. And let's let's now start breaking down a real conversation. And I'm not trying to take a, a position here one way or the other. What I'm saying is, is that Christians sometimes can look completely nonsensical when we talk about how immoral, how disgusting, how horrible it would be to kill an innocent child. And then we have a, a God who's who's given us a book, we claim. And in that book, it has God commanding people to do the very things that we say are the most horrendous things on earth. And this is how we answer it. Well, that's God. He can do what he wants to. That in and of itself causes a much bigger question because now what we're saying is we can serve an immoral God. Because yeah. if God can if God can do what he wants to, if God's above morals, then he can do whatever he wants to. That's a horrible God. If you serve a God that has no has no morals, if that's who you believe God is, I would really highly question you to reevaluate how you're reading the Bible. Because if you believe something can be immoral, objectively immoral, but your God actually participate in something like that, you have to then start figuring out how do I now read Scripture. And and my conclusion to the matter is we have to rethink how we're reading the Bible. We have we cannot go to the Bible as a flat, static constitution. We have to take into consideration the context. We have to challenge things. When Jesus says, this is how you need to treat your enemies, and we compare that with some of the things we see in the Old Testament, it's not enough to say, well, that's the Old Testament things have changed. Because if Jesus truly is the embodiment, if he is God on earth, and he revealed who God is, then we have to start asking some serious questions. And unfortunately, this is where people either become atheist because they think that there's just so much contradictions or people end up becoming dishonest and say, well, I'm just going to ignore the parts of the Bible that I don't like. And I'm going to say when God was immoral, I'm just going to ignore that part. I'm not going to talk about that part. And and when you talk about how Jesus tells us to treat our enemies versus how God's people in the Old Testament treated their enemies— there's a difference. <laughs> there is a stark contrast between the two. Having to figure out all of that, it it's not a one, it's not going to be a five-minute answer. It's not going to be a quick, here's your book, chapter, and verse that answers everything. It's going to be a layered study, and we have to to rethink our relationship with Scripture and how we're coming to our conclusions, which I kind of just went off on a tangent there. But I think it's important for people to realize that when you start talking about these types of topics and you start really looking at who God is, and by the way, the new the new atheist, they tend to know the Bible more than more than modern Christians because they actually they know where these passages are. They're they're gonna they're gonna go to people and say, Well, do you think that it's ever okay to kill a baby? No, it's never okay to kill a baby. You know, no, no. Okay, well, what about, you know, somebody just going up to an innocent pregnant woman and taking a sword and ripping her open. Do you think that's okay? No, that's horrible. Well, why do you follow a God then who would ever command something like that? 
And, 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 and Christians are sitting there going, well, I have no idea how to answer that. I don't know what to do with that. Well, that's Old Testament. I don't have to deal with it. Yes, we have to deal with it. We have to engage that information. And the same thing with, with so many other, other things, so many other principles that, that are found in Scripture. And uh, by the way, one of the questions on this subject that I, you know, people tend to, I don't want to get into the topic of abortion, but uh, one of the ways that I have heard uh, people explain this, and this is how I used to explain it as well, God knew that they were evil. Uh, the, the, the people, God knew the pagans were, were evil. And so in doing so, and having all the, the innocent women and the children killed and even the pregnant women killed and all of that. And by the way, they just didn't kill babies in women's bellies. That they, they actually are children in, in women's stomachs. They were actually killing children. They were killing everyone. They were killing your two-year-olds and your three-year-olds and your five-year-olds and your eight-year-olds. They were killing everybody. And people say, well, you know, God just knew they were going to grow up to be evil. Well, if, if that's the case then... And if, if, especially if you grew up in the Church of Christ where hardly anybody's going to make it to heaven anyway, would the most righteous and just thing not be to just, if you have a baby, go ahead and kill it? Because that way it ensures they're going to go to heaven. And so that way you don't have to worry about it. Now that's horrible, isn't it? That's a horrible way yeah. to think. But that's the, that's the problem is when we make silly arguments, we're going to be faced with silly conclusions and we're going to be faced with silly dilemmas. And that's what we've ran up against is on the one hand, we've said, oh, well, God, you know, he kills people when he knows they're going to be wicked. Well, then isn't it good then to kill wicked people? And if, if they're going to be wicked at influence, they're just go ahead and kill all of them, which, by the way, that's how a lot of justification for a lot of evil has, has taken place in this world. Um, Hitler quoted the Bible when he talked about his plans because he at least alluded to scripture and uh, whether or not he believed he was actually following the Bible, that's another topic. But the point is, is that he at least contrived a plan to where enough people thought they were following the Bible and doing what Hitler told him to do. When you begin to justify what you do on the, on the account that the scripture says it, that's a scary, scary thing. If you can start to justify hate and violence and those things. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, this is a great topic, man. Yeah. We, I think we really need to do a podcast over what are, commonly called the texts of terror in the scriptures because we just <laughs> went on like a five, six minute, uh, sidebar on that. Uh, it was more me, man. Yeah. You, you, you didn't say we, it was more me, man. I kind of, I kind of detracted there, but no, it's, Hey, it's it, all good. But, but, but the thing is, is it, dude, it ties into what we're talking about though, because all of that stems at least in part and can at the very least be tangentially related to that regulative principle. Because if God regulates worship and God regulates exactly how worship is to be conducted, and if you don't do it that way, you do it to your peril, well, then why wouldn't it naturally extend to those other things that you talked about? And I think that's definitely an episode we need to do in the future. But with with the time we have left and in, in wrapping all of this up, it is incredibly important because it's something that that so many people adhere to and follow without really knowing consciously that it's that that is the driving philosophy behind much of their theology. And if I could just in to bring this to a close, whenever we consider the regulative principle, one of the things that emanates from that regulative principle, we talked about the Sinai hermeneutic, command example, necessary inference. And using command example, necessary inference, what is usually built is this construct that we refer to as the pattern or a blueprint. And in this, it's real common within some reform circles and in some um, really ultra conservative churches of Christ. And even in those that aren't all that 
ultra conservative to say that there is a blueprint for worship that we are to follow. And that blueprint and that pattern is extrapolated from scripture. But whenever we take a look at scripture in and of itself, when we recognize it for what it is, we see that scripture really doesn't contain a blueprint for worship, but it does present the principles that guide Christians in how we live our lives and by extension in how we worship. You know, one of the things I'd like to bring this up because in one of the first lessons I ever gave, it was on instrumental music and why instrumental music was, was a sin. And in talking about this idea of God regulating worship and, you know, the Bible tells us to sing. It doesn't authorize us playing an instrument. And whenever people say, well, the Bible doesn't say we can't, I, I said, well, that's a bad argument because the Bible doesn't say that we can't shoot monkeys out of cannons as worship either. But no one's trying to haul a monkey up to the front of the building and put it in a cannon and shoot that monkey out of the cannon as a, as a mechanism of worship or as an act of worship. God doesn't say we can't do that. And that really misses the entire point because whenever you seek to follow God, and you seek to worship God, there's no import or no power that comes from shooting a monkey out of a can. That doesn't have anything to do with anything. I mean, that's really a, a fallacious manner of reasoning. It's an appeal to absurdity, and it really doesn't make any point at all. If there were a blueprint for worship in the New Testament church, then we would see it outlined specifically because, you know, you just went off on a whole lot deeper and heavier topic of, of what kind of God would tell someone to go out and kill all these people and cut babies from their, from their mother's wombs. Well, what kind of God would say there is a blueprint that one must follow for worship or be lost in the devil's hell for all eternity and then not give us an actual specific, clear blueprint to follow. And it's, it's, it, I just kind of lost my train of thought on that. But the idea is, is that the regulative principle, if it lends itself to a blueprint, it's a pretty shoddy blueprint because it doesn't really exist in a way that's easy to find. If it did, we wouldn't have 33,000 different denominations. Well, everything so, is enmeshed and, and everything interacts with, with each other. So when we talk about how do we read the Bible and what kind of God would dot, 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 fill in the blank. And then you have to ask, well, what kind of God do I serve? Because the kind of, and, and, and this just usually, like I said, it feeds off of each other. Because if you really believe God is a God who can do whatever he wants to, then um, that means I serve a immoral God. And, and that's fine if you believe that, but you have to be willing to say that I serve an immoral God. And if you go, well, no, God's above morals. Well, if God's above morals, then God can lie. And if you say, well, God says he can't lie. Well, sure, but he can lie about that because if he can change his mind, if he is not holding himself to the same standard of his creation, what kind of God is that? What, what kind of God would, would, would give his people moral laws and then he doesn't have to abide by them because he is God. So now I have to ask, what kind of God is that? And I was listening to a, a, a brief, it was not very long at all. It was a, I would call it a, a lectureship, but it even wasn't a lectureship. It was just a, a quick little video John Piper did about the genocide. He goes, well, I have no problem with the fact that God can command us to kill innocent people. He said, I have no problem with that. He goes, because if God wants us to do it, then, then we'll do it. That kind of stuff scares me to death because what he's saying is I am abandoning all my senses at the door and I'm willing to do whatever I'm convinced I think I need to do, even if it means killing innocent people. 
That's that's horrific. But when you when you serve a God that you think is above morals, a God that can do whatever he wants to, and a God, and, and by the way, this is what we say. Well, God's ways are higher than our ways. That doesn't sound high. That sounds that sounds demonically low. <laughs> that's not a high way. That's that's a low way if you say that that's the kind of God you serve. And so, Lee, to your point, you're exactly right, man. What kind of God do we serve if he is going to hold us accountable to getting every little detail right when the the, the Bible, so much of it is ambiguous to begin with. And by the way, it was written 2,000 years ago. It's hard for me sometimes to read a letter written by somebody I personally know a week ago and understand what they mean. My wife and I, we live together. We work together. We literally are together all the time. We can usually know what the other's about to think, but we still oftentimes have miscommunications, yet I'm supposed to read a book composed of personal and private letters and 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 narratives written by people from thousands of years ago in different in, in literally different worlds in different times and different cultures. And if I get one little thing wrong, boom, that's it. I didn't follow the pattern. And unfortunately, Lee, here's what it boils down to a lot of people do view God that way. And, and that is, to me, it's heartbreaking. That's how I used to view God. And I was miserable. I was absolutely internally miserable. I was arrogant. I condemned everybody. And I, in myself, didn't know if I was saved or not because you never you never can, can even believe that. You can't that. know. There's you can't no even way feel that know. way. No, you're terrified. You're absolutely terrified. I was arrogant in the sense because I had to convince myself I did have all of the answers, but the bottom line is, to your point, I think that's a phenomenal point that you're making because you have to ask, what kind of God do I serve? And then you have to ask, is the kind of God I serve that I believe I'm serving, is that really the God that I am reading in Scripture? Or am I only creating a God by ex- ex- taking just a two or three Bible verses or a handful of stories and kind of creating my own God? Well, and it gets down to the idea of what was Jesus's entire point of living and dying and preaching and doing all of the things he did while he was on this earth? Mm, yeah. like where does Jesus play into all of that? Because if we get into pattern theology and we get into this idea of a blueprint and the pattern to follow, well, then what is that blueprint? Is it one that we arbitrarily extrapolate from scripture because God didn't give us a really clear blueprint to follow as far as what worship should look like or anything like that? Well, then what is that pattern? And if we look at what the apostle Paul says in Philippians 3 and 17, he says, you know, follow after us, you have us for a pattern. And that's one of the verses that a lot of pattern theologians, myself included at a previous point in time, would utilize to say, well, see here, so we need to do all of the things that they said to do. And by that, what I mean is, is my interpretation of what those things are. We observe the Lord's Supper with one loaf and one cup. We do it on Sunday morning and Sunday morning only. We don't do night communion like those digressives do because that's a that's two different communion services and we all need to wait for one another to come together to do it. Um, we don't divide into Bible classes because that's that's wrong too. That divides the assembly. That's the pattern. That's the pattern. Well, no. He, Paul said, you have us for a pattern. Okay, well, what is that pattern? In, in 1 Corinthians 11, you imitate me as I imitate all of the rules and regulations that God gave me to give to all of you. I'm following all of these rules perfectly, so you guys need to follow me in following those rules. No, follow me as I follow Christ. Whenever we look at John's gospel, whenever we look at John's epistles, we see over and over and over again 
that love for God and love for neighbor is the end all be all. It is the ultimate pattern that we are to follow. Whenever we look at Jesus's life, it is a perfect example of, of humility. It is the perfect example of obedience to the will of God, even to the point of self-sacrifice. We see it's the ultimate example of an expression of love for one's fellow man. And whenever we look at that through the relational lens that we talk about on this podcast over and again, we intrinsically know what that means. You know, who, if, if their son asks them for bread is, or a gift or whatever it was, is going to give their son a serpent. No one's going to do that. If my kid asks me for something to eat, I'm going to give them something to eat. Now, if they ask for a lollipop or a cookie, I might not give them one then. It might be like, well, you eat some good food, then you can have that. But if they want something to eat, I'm not going to, you know, drop a rabid honey badger in their lap and let them get mauled by it. That's yeah. not how relationship works. Whenever we look at the example of Jesus and we look at the arc and the theme of Scripture, we see that Jesus is the pattern. Jesus is the blueprint that we follow. We model our lives after him, and we're not, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? We're not involved in churchianity. We're not involved in, in Bible worship. Bibliolatry, that's the word. I couldn't think of it. We're Christians. We're Christ-like. We try to be like Jesus. We try to follow his example by sacrificing ourselves oftentimes, if need be, for the good of our neighbor, for the good of our loved ones, for the good of service in the kingdom. And whenever you pursue that, that goes far and above and beyond any supposed arbitrary restrictions or permissions that exist as it relates to worship. No, I'm not going to shoot a monkey out of a cannon and worship to God because that has nothing at all to do with worshiping God. But if I sing and make yeah. melody in my heart, I can still do that with or without an instrument. And I mean, I prefer to do it without an instrument. And we'll we'll do an episode on instrumental music at some point. We'll dive into that rabbit hole. And apparently we're going to do one on the text of terror because you've left us no choice now. But <laughs> in a, well, and this and this and really this kind of <clears throat> is more or less an introduction, I would say. We'll probably do several parts. In fact, let's let's make sure we like name this part one and then just we don't have to do them in a row. But I, I think we should just kind of keep coming back to these throughout um, throughout the months and, and perhaps years and just keep kind of adding to this because this is real, really where everything starts is how do I view the Bible? And and how do and sometimes when I read the Bible a certain way, like when I read the Bible through command, example, necessary inference, that made me have to, it forced me to read the Bible a different way because I realized this cannot be correct because it's not, it's, it's not coherent. It's inconsistent. It's, it, it's, it's not working in a, if in a very pragmatical, you know, in, in very practical ways, it's just not, this is, this can't be it because there's no consistency to this approach at all. And when you look at, just answering the question, what is the Bible? The answer usually is it's the word of God. And I'm going to leave this, for lack of better words, cliffhanger. I don't believe the Bible's the word of God. And so we'll we'll just stop there. And I'm not going to give any qualifiers for that because that's something else I'm going to be talking about a lot in my book. Um, I will say Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the full embodiment. And the Bible gives us stories. The Bible it points us to one thing, the point of scripture is one thing, and that is to reveal who God is in Jesus Christ. And so my faith is not in the Bible. 
my faith is in Jesus Christ. When people say, that, oh, you don't think you can trust the Bible. No, I think the Bible is inspired and I think you can trust it and all those things. But what those things mean, defining inspiration, defining what it means to trust something, because I don't trust when when um, the Bible tells me when the Bible is quoting Satan. I don't I don't I don't trust that in the sense of saying, oh, well, Satan said it. So Satan's in the Bible. So I guess now what Satan says is God's word. We understand those simple type of concepts, but for whatever reason, we forget that when we talk about the Bible because we we think that the Bible is this constitution instead of realizing it's a lot of stories. There's a lot of in the Bible. The Bible says it's not true. Like the Bible actually corrects things in the Bible itself, and it, it's narrative. That's what happens in narrative, and so you see so much going on that is is not going to be unpacked in just one podcast podcast episode. I mean, this is something that it, it's, it runs very deep. And I keep emphasizing this because in my book, I really get into depth on all of these topics and I step-by-step walk through and explain how I arrived at where I arrived at. But my bottom line is this, it is all about Jesus. The Bible has one point and one purpose. The Bible, in the, the when Paul is writing to the Christians in Galatia, he says, what's the point of the Old Testament? It's to bring us to Jesus, period. When Paul, when when you look at what uh, John says, he says, look, Jesus reveals to us who God is. No other person has seen God. Jesus is the embodiment of God. When you go to Colossians, it's the embodiment. Jesus is God. He is revealing to us who God is in the flesh, not in written word. He is revealing to us who he is. First John 1, Jesus came. They touched him. They were able to see him. He actually came. He showed us who God is by, by, by coming to us. So if I want to know who God is, I'm not going to go read the genocide passages in the Old Testament. I'm going to study Jesus, and then I'm going to wrestle with how are their genocide passages attributed to God? What am I to make of all that? And that's now that's now what we have to be thinking about. But ultimately, if, if, you, look, if you read the Bible and you don't come away with the fact that Jesus is what the Bible is about, I can convincingly say you have not read the Bible properly. Because even when you look at, um, I mean, there's so much, by the way, I'm kind of getting getting off topic here, but I mean, you see this in Hebrews. Listen to who? Listen to Jesus. God spoke in different ways. Now he speaks to his son, Jesus. When you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, here's Elijah, here's Moses, here's Jesus. Let's make a, a tabernacle for all of them. No, 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 just Jesus. Here's my son. You listen to him because he is revealing who I am. He is revealing who God is. And so that means that if my faith is in Jesus Christ, well, whoever Jesus is, God cannot contradict that. So if there's anything ever in the Old Testament that does not seem to fit or clearly does not seem to fit with who Jesus is, we have to figure out a different way to explain it. Otherwise, well, we have some big problems on our hand, and I don't think Marcion is the answer, uh, the, the Marcion approach. He was an early church father who said, well, just throw out the Old Testament. I don't think you can do that either. I think the Old Testament is Scripture as well. We have to figure out, though, how it was written, how we read it, and how we apply it. Exactly. Why is it there? And that's what we'll get into in episodes to come. But ultimately, man, you just made the point that that I was trying to get to, and you did it so, so passionately. I appreciate that about you, man. And it's Jesus is the regulative principle. The regulative principle as it is, is not or shouldn't be how we approach worship. It's not, well, this is what we can do in worship. This is what we don't do in worship because we end up with a list of rules and regulations and things to do and things not to do that are arbitrarily decided and disagreed upon. It leads to division upon division upon division. Jesus 
is what should be our regulative principle. That's what I mean to say, because ultimately that is where the Bible leads us. That's the narrative arc of scripture. The purpose of scripture is to make God known to mankind. And that was ultimately fulfilled in the personhood and ministry of Christ himself. And if a viewpoint that anyone has, and I love how you put this, if, if you have a viewpoint of God that doesn't align or coalesce with what we know about Christ, then the viewpoint that you have of God is a flawed perspective. And that's really what we were really wanting to drive home with this. And we finally did it. So do you have anything else three and that you want to hours add? Later. Well, three and a half. Well, an hour and a half. Look, half it, it, it all comes down to this. And that is, what what do you think the scripture's supposed to do? And, and I'm not talking about the candid answer. Oh, well, you know, it's or, or just the, the cookie cutter answer. Oh, well, it just, you know, tells me how to live a life and go to heaven. No, no, I'm talking about legitimately, what is the point of the Bible? And if we can't answer that question... Uh, then, I, then we need to really reevaluate things because if you ask me, Kevin, what's the point of the Bible? The, Bi- the point of the Bible is to teach us who Jesus is, is to point us to Jesus, is to is to to reveal who God is in the person of Jesus. That's the point of the Bible. The Bible records all of these things so that we know who Jesus Christ is, and so that we can follow Him. When you look at all of the passages you brought up about patterns and how people are to behave, and and how even Paul taught the same thing in every church, which we know he didn't because sometimes he taught completely different things to different people in different churches. But the same thing he said he taught in First Corinthians four is about Jesus. That's the same thing. What did Paul? I'll say the only thing I'm teaching is Christ and Him crucified. The it's 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 a crucic Christocentric ideology of understanding how the Bible operates. And a lot of people, the more I read this, they they balk at this idea, which kind of blows my mind because I'm a Christian. I'm not a a, a Bibleian. I'm a Christian. I, my my leader is Jesus Christ, and it is my conviction that I, for many years, worshipped the Bible. The Bible was my God. Um, yes. And 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 from cover to cover, that's what I worshipped. It was about worshiping these pages. It wasn't about worshiping the person. It wasn't about Jesus. It was about the pages. But you know what is so powerful? God stepped off from the pages and came in flesh and blood. And you know what? I think today we try to put them right back on the pages. We, we try do. to put them right back on there. And so here Jesus, you know, God said, you know, I'm going to step out of these pages and I'm going to actually show you who I am because you guys don't have a clue who I am. And by the ones, the, the ones who knew the Bible the most couldn't even recognize Jesus when he was right in front of our faces. That's why I'm saying that I think we have to be careful when we say the Bible's the word of God. I believe the Bible contains the word of God. And I believe the Bible points us to the true word of God, Hebrews 4.12, which is talking about Jesus Christ in context. But I, I think we have to be careful when we say, well, we got to take the the genocide account or we've got to take this obscured passage here of of, you know, owning um, ejaculating on the floor. And that that has just as much significance as Jesus teaching us the Sermon on the Mount. No, it doesn't. <laughs> like <laughs> if, if you really believe owning jacking off on the floor is equivalent to 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 Jesus telling us how we're to love our enemies, may I submit you're not reading the Bible correctly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is certainly one powerful way you can put it, but <laughs> but dude, but I mean that's that's spot on though, man. And and that's the entire point of this. Whenever the Bible is approached in such a way where Jesus is put in the back seat, things like the regulative principle are gonna arise to the surface. 
we're going to begin to go to the scriptures to try to take our preconceptions, prove those preconceptions, and we lose sight of the forest for the trees. We miss Jesus. And dude, I'm just like you, man. I miss Jesus for so long because I was so focused on the Bible as the word of God that I missed the word of God. And that's, that's absolutely true. Everything needs to be viewed through that lens. And this will kind of tie into what we're going to talk about next time, which I'm not going to give you a preview. You'll just have to wait and see what that thing is. But as we wrap this up, though, we always want to thank our listeners. We love all of you. We appreciate you all so much. We have had so much growth with this podcast. We appreciate you sharing it with others. We keep getting word from other people about the blessing that it has been and how it has helped them pursue God and follow God and know God on a better level and on a deeper level. And that's super humbling to me. I know it's humbling to you, Kevin. We've talked, we've had conversation about that before. It's so cool to see the good that this is doing in, in the hearts and in the lives of so many Christians and that it has been such a force for good in, in the somewhat limited audience that we've had. It's still cool to see that impact. And so that we can expand that impact, we just ask, share this podcast with your friends, share it with your loved ones, share it with your neighbors. Give us that five-star review on iTunes or whatever platform you're using. We appreciate you all. If you need anything, have any questions, concerns, comments, suggestions, anything you'd like for us to cover, drop us an email. Our email's in the show notes. We appreciate you all. We'll see you soon.